across America and around the world. This is Veterans Radio. This is Veterans Radio. Welcome to Veterans Radio. I am Jim Fawson. I'm the officer of the deck today. We've got some great programs for you. I think you'll find very interesting. We always want to remind you, you can find more about Veterans Radio at its Facebook site or at the web. VeteransRadio.org is our new URL, VeteransRadio.org. Where we're on the web 24-7, you can find a lot of our podcasts there as well. We post new ones every Tuesday, so you can get a new story, a new interview, something you didn't know before by going to veteransradio.org. And before we get started, we want to thank our sponsors. First up, we want to thank National Veteran Business Development Council, nvbdc.org. It was established to certify both service-disabled and veteran-owned businesses. You'll find out how they can help your business by going to nvbdc.org. We want to thank Legal Help for Veterans. Legal Help for Veterans fights for veterans' disability rights all across the nation. You can reach them at 800-693-4800 or on the web at LegalHelpForVeterans.com. We want to welcome to Veterans Radio today, Allison Jaslow, who is the CEO of Iraq and Afghanistan Veterans of America, better known as IAVA. Allison, welcome to Veterans Radio. Thanks for having me. Well, we're thrilled to have the CEO of IAVA on and talk about a number of issues, but let's sort of set this up a little bit. Uh, how did a nice kid like you uh, who graduated from the University of Central Missouri and Wentworth Military Academy uh, under ROTC scholarships end up in the U.S. Army? Well, the Army was a dream of mine when I was a kid. Um, uh, starting when I was 13, I went on a career day field trip. In fact, I regularly uh, draw attention to the fact that I'm the only success story of career day that I know of, and that's still the case. <laughs> um but I, you know, it was a year where at my school, you went on a field trip and I picked a bunch of other places to go, um, you know, because when you're 13, you want to go to the place where you can get some free stuff or maybe some food, um, but ended up at Fort Meyer, um, which is the military base that's connected to Arlington National Cemetery. Um, and from that day on, uh, because the sort of ceremonial aspect of Fort Myer uh, swept me off my feet, uh, I had wanted to be in the Army ever since. Um, in fact, the dream and goal, because I like to aim high, at the time, the Army had yet to have its first four-star woman general. Um, so that was like the path that I thought I was going to walk in my life was join the army, however, which way I could do it. And, you know, climb, climb, climb until, you know, hopefully I could reach the pinnacle of uh, service in the army. Um, went to school, as you noted, on an ROTC scholarship. Uh, I began school the fall of 2000. So of course um, my sophomore year was 
when September 11th happened, and of course the trajectory of my career changed fundamentally, um, you know, I went in eyes wide open knowing that I could go to war someday, but of course, you know, our, our country and our military has dealt with a lot ever since. Um, but despite deploying twice to Iraq, um, you know, it wasn't deployments that ultimately made me want to get out, um, but just some of the challenges that uh, I faced while I was in the military, um, but also, I had this um, sort of instinct or intuition that I could maybe make a better impact or a greater impact for the greater good of my country and on my fellow countrymen if I actually did so out of uniform. And so in the years since I have crisscrossed the country, um, you know, dabbling in political campaigns and serving in a number of roles in government to include in the White House and on Capitol Hill. Um, and I like to say that you know, what I do today is sort of the perfect marriage of the skill sets I have learned post-service and then also my identity as a veteran myself, because I now have the great privilege of advocating on behalf of a generation of veterans that I belong to in a community that I belong to um, on the national stage, in the media, and um, in Washington, D.C., yeah, you really do have a great blend of talent uh, and experience for that. Uh, the work that was done on the staff of several members of Congress and then in the White House communications area sort of helps set all of that up so that you can you know, walk the halls and talk to folks and know how they think and how they react to certain uh, uh, challenges that, the, that they face. But before we uh, get a little deeper here, I, I want to... Uh, talk to folks about what your um, experiences in Iraq were about, and and uh, you exited. I don't know the years. I guess I didn't track the years down, but you were in from when to when, and I know your terminal rank was as a captain in the army. Yeah, so I was sworn in um, to active duty in, upon graduation in May of 2004. Uh, went to my officer basic course in June of 2004, graduated in September. And by the day after Thanksgiving of that year, was on a plane to Kuwait um, before heading north into Iraq. Um, I served just under a year during that deployment. Um, I was actually attached to a reserve unit from your neck of the woods. Um, a it was a reserve unit that drew from across the Midwest, but was based in Bay City, Michigan. Um, was able to get my platoon leader time uh, running that platoon. And what we had originally deployed with um, was a warehousing mission. I had four different warehousing operations that I was the accountable officer for, but within 60 days, uh, all the warehouses, but one were contracted out to Kellogg, Brown and Root. And so my platoon then became both a force protection platoon um, and a, which, which included not just only base force protection, but also convoy security. And so my platoon, myself included, did uh, convoys up and down Iraq uh, and provided basically the convoy security element in between, whether it was, you know, regular petroleum tankers or flatbed trucks, you name it. Um, you know, on a, on a battlefield where those particular trucks aren't as agile as the gun trucks were, but that there were, you know, basically IEDs everywhere. Um, I came home stateside to Fort Carson, Colorado, 
for a little over a year after that, and then deployed again in January 2007, um, which was just ahead of the surge being announced. And so I was overseas for about 15 months that time. I served in, on battalion staff for that particular deployment. Um, and that one was at you know Camp Liberty or the Baghdad International Airport. And my first deployment was um, to Taji, Iraq. Well, one of the things you learned in that first deployment is that uh, responsibilities shift and change and you just roll with whatever the next assignment is. And that's certainly been the case in your post-military career. You've had a lot of interesting assignments. Um, and now this most recent one here in 2023 is CEO of IAVA. Why don't you tell our listeners, and maybe there's some who are not familiar with what uh, the work and the mission of IAVA is. So IAVA is the leading advocacy organization for the post 9-11 generation of veterans. In fact, we're commonly referred to as the leading voice of the post 9-11 generation of veterans. Um, but essentially we are storytellers that tell the story of our generation, whether that's our needs or also our successes. And oftentimes, you know, doing that work best in class means we are telling that story and shaping that narrative in the media with the hopes of influencing public opinion with the hopes of them influencing public policy action. Um, IEVA, you know, counts among its achievements, the passage of the post 9-11 GI Bill, um, the Clay Hunt Suicide Prevention Act, which was named after one of our member advocates who died by suicide. Um, and also laws passed very recently, like the PACT Act, um, which helps veterans get care for exposure to toxins. Um, which is a variety of different toxins uh, over a number of generations. But, you know, IVA really did spark the conversation around burn pitch, which are burn pits exposure, excuse me, which are unique to our particular generation. Well, certainly one of the uh, aspects of IAVA is it's sort of a different veterans organization than maybe the traditional nationally chartered ones like VFW, VVA, which came out of a, a specific generation. Talk to us about how IAVA is intentionally a different type of organization. Well, our founder um, is usually the first to point out that we are the first digitally native uh, veterans organization. Um, we don't have it anymore, but IAVA had a MySpace page back when MySpace was a thing. <laughs> um, but, but, you know, our generation, first of all, we are much fewer in numbers, but we're not congregating necessarily in Legion halls. And so we are more connected online than anywhere else, whether it's in a Facebook page, whether it's, you know, on a group text between battle buddies, um, or a, a group chat of some sort. And so I think that's one way that makes us unique, both where our constituency is living and breathing, but also that we are uniquely capable of existing online. Um, you know, IVA, I feel like has, has been a disruptor, um, you know, especially in Washington, DC, in a way that has been necessary. And I think this is actually makes us similar to the VVA, you know, we, stand in solidarity with other generations of veterans, but we're there to make sure that like our generation's needs don't get overlooked, which is, 
you know, ever more important because we're much smaller in numbers. Um, and I think, you know, organizational posture aside, something that also makes us a unique voice is that we're the only major national veterans organization that represents um, exclusively volunteers. You know, every person who served in Iraq and Afghanistan or the other, you know, areas post 9-11 that we are still actually deploying troops to fight today, um, they all stepped up to serve and um, did so willingly. Some of them deployed like myself multiple times and we have very unique needs for that reason. Um, and I think, you know, you and I were talking about this before we uh, jumped on. I think that puts us in a unique position to also advocate um, around issues like the recruiting crisis, you know, and what we should be doing to make sure that we have a healthy all volunteer force because we are veterans who were all volunteers. Um, whereas, you know, some of the other organizations definitely have a mix, right? And I th again, I think it's a, uh, it just made sense that this evolved, uh, IAVA evolved into this position because it, you referenced VVA, uh, Vietnam Veterans Association had to do the same thing for their generation of folks to try to get heard for their issues. So th this uh, organization for the veterans who've served since post 9-11, and you know, we've just only within the last year or so ended a 20-year war, um, IVA has this unique responsibility to that group of veterans uh, which they're with their own set of issues. And certainly it's a more digital, more uh, comfortable on the internet uh, sort of group, more of an online sort of group. And one of the things that you've done with that is, and I think this helps you become a, a better policy advocate, is when you have data, uh, when walking mm -hmm. the halls of Congress. This is one, probably one of those things you learned because of your experiences on Capitol Hill and in the White House communication. But IVA went out and surveyed its members about issues. Can we can we talk about the the 2023 IAV member survey? Sure. Um, you know, I think over time IAVA uh, has done two things really well with our our data, um, which is comprised of you know over 425,000 members and supporters, um, and some of which are verified veterans. In other words, like you haven't even just self-identified, but we have paperwork that says you are 100% a vet. So when you're responding to our surveys, we know for a fact we've seen your GD-214 or we've seen your VA card, et cetera. Um, and we have been able to field the most comprehensive non-governmental survey of our generation. But we also do what I like to call flash polls. Um, which is what we did over the summer to just gauge where our membership was on some of the issues of the day, which, you know, it's funny. People will like to pigeonhole us on just veterans issues. Right. But veterans, veterans are like everybody. They have opinions about other issues of the day. And I think that we believe that it's important that, that, the veteran voice is heard as a part of other conversations as well. You, you could um, say we are people too. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I know. I will tell you a great deal of my advocacy is um, I was actually at a conference last week where I highlighted this. I was like, we aren't this like, you can't look at the veterans population and like put us over in this corner as though like, you know, all the vets are there. It's like, we are both veterans and part of like a variety of other constituency groups, you know, and we are 
everywhere in terms of like geography, socioeconomic status, you know? <laughs> well, what, um, and one and of the, so one of the different... yeah, one of the things you did in your poll, and I think this was interesting because, uh, you know, folks in the military say, hey, we're always say, we're the last ones who want war. We are peacekeepers. We know the cost of war. We don't, we're, we're not, you know, warmongers. And one of the questions you asked folks was about uh, authorization of use of military force. I thought that was mm-hmm. an interesting statistic. Talk to us about it. Well, actually, nothing unifies our membership more than a desire to see the 2001 and 2002 authorizations of military force either repealed or reformed. Um, they've been open-ended since they were passed to authorize you know, retaliation for 9-11 and then also to go into Iraq. And frankly, those open-ended authorizations have been exploited by administration after administration. Um, and I think two things, you're right in the sense that um, members of the military, because they understand the consequences of wars more so than people who aren't emotionally connected to it are, are perhaps more inclined to be more thoughtful and judicious when we even go to war. Um, but more importantly, political leaders should be doing the same, right? And so I think the beginning and end of the AUMF isn't saying that like nobody still you know, doesn't want to fight terrorism, you know, where we have troops deployed right now in Syria and Iraq. There may be a very good reason why troops are deployed there to, you know, make sure that ISIS doesn't get out of control or fill in the blank other threat that we're, we're um, fighting across the globe right now. But what we do owe those troops and what we do owe their families is to have a constant conversation about where they're going, under what terms and what for, pur- for what purpose. And we're not having that conversation, at least Congress isn't. And, the, and that is like their most res, you know, solemn responsibility. In effect, they've been advocate, abdic, excuse me, abdicating their responsibility to our troops and their families for, you know, going on decades. Well, <laughs> well as, as, you, as you say, that, that open-ended uh, authorization, 85% agreed or strongly agreed that that ought to be reduced or eliminated. I, again, that was probably the highest, um, every, highest thing everybody agreed on on this 550 or so uh, verified veterans that were surveyed. Another one that's, you know, in the news is how your members felt about Ukraine and the U.S. involvement mm-hmm. in Ukraine. Again, not as high, not not 85%, but 67% either agreed with U.S. involvement um, strongly or agreed to it. So, so while there is experience, there's also understanding that if you don't do something, the bad guys always win, right? So uh, uh, that l- led me to your... Uh, results on China, which is something I worry about. Uh, talk yeah. to us how your members felt about the, the China situation. I mean, a majority of IVA members, um, you know, over 50% indicated that they are only partly confident in the ability of the U.S. to deal with threats from China. Um, and 30% don't believe that we're prepared at all. So to your earlier point, even if... Uh, vets and IAVA veterans specifically want sort of checks and balances on how and when we go to war and how we combat threats um, and or want, you know, 
political leadership specifically to be thinking through uh, how and when we go to war. They also want to make sure that we are, you know, protected for the threats of the future. And honestly, the, the, China is a good example. Like if we effectively protect ourselves from the threats, we could also avoid a war with China. Absolutely. Right? <laughs> Absolutely. And, and your uh, members, uh, certainly the early ones in, in Iraq, uh, went there with unarmored vehicles, right? We weren't ready, yep. ready for it at all. And you don't, you know, I know the slogan was you fight the war with what the equipment you've got. But that just showed poor planning, poor thinking ahead. And and I kind mm-hmm. of read this result where 30% of the survey says, hey, we're not ready. We're leading ourselves back into a situation where once, if, if, if it does happen, we're going to have folks in unarmored vehicles, if you will. So it, it's an interesting uh, observation, I think, from folks who've been there and done that. Well, and I also think our generation, to your point about up-armored vehicles, it's not just like up-armored vehicles, like the the enemy was always one step ahead of us. And so we needed to be able to innovate in real time. And I think our generation has sort of lived seeing how the DOD is not very good at doing that. Um, you know, the DOD is still very much like in their procurement process is still very much stuck in the olden days of being able to like, you know, plan out for wars in certain timelines uh, that we just can't, you know, we need to be able to move and shake like they do in Silicon Valley to keep up with war fighting these days. And I don't know that our, our government and the bureaucracy is totally there. And I think that our our generation of veterans has a unique appreciation for that. And I think that would give us a higher anxiety level when it comes to like fighting the, the threats of the future, you know? It, it is, again, one of those things where you say, boy, I hope somebody's planning the right way on this stuff and we don't get caught short. Um, and you, you can hear a lot of that about uh, does the Navy really have enough ships? Are we gonna, do we have the right types of ships? If we're, do we have the right technology to be able to fight uh, China in the, um, on the seas and by the Philippines and down by uh, Taiwan and Australia, it's a big theater to fight in and a much different theater than the desert, much different theater mm-hmm. than urban warfare we're seeing in, in Ukraine. So you've got to think about it a different way. I want to move to another part of your survey, which was domestic policy, because this is something that I've certainly anecdotally noticed every time I talk on the issue of cannabis uh, on Veterans Radio. Um, mm mm-hmm. But talk to us a little bit about uh, what you found in terms of uh, support on uh, legalizing cannabis. Well, you know, I'd I'd say from the jump that uh, something that your listeners need to remember is our generation of veterans has lived through the opioid crisis. And so whether it's cannabis, or other forms of alternative therapies, our generation is more eager to get access to alternative therapies than generations of the past. So that's the first thing. Um, And something we have advocated for for some time is at minimum research into cannabis and its healing properties, not just for managing your PTSD, but maybe also chronic pain. Um, Because we do know that there are veterans who are benefiting from use of cannabis you know, products, but also because it is being legalized in 
many states across the country, which I'm sure your listeners have seen on the landscape. But the reality is if you get your um, care through the VA in a state that's legalized it, your VA doctor still can't prescribe it to you or even say, you know, I, I can prescribe you this medication or that medication, or I can't prescribe you cannabis, but you do live in a state where it's available and some veterans have seen um, positive effects from using cannabis for their PTSD or positive effects for using cannabis to relieve their back pain after, you know, two different deployments with a bunch of gear on and convoys. Um, and so our members more than, uh, I'll have to, I'm looking at the data right now, but it's an overwhelming number of our, our members would like to see um, legalization at the, the national level because it's holding back veterans who want to get access to this care. I mean, we have a, we have one of our veteran leaders who lives in, um, Indiana and regularly drives to Illinois to, to access cannabis products that he pays for on his own dime after spending time and gas money to go get the cannabis that has really helped his PTSD specifically. Um, and I think our fellow vets, even if you don't want to use cannabis yourself, you don't want your buddies like having to bend over backwards to get something that says that they, or that they tell you really makes an improvement in their quality of life. And, and, um, and usually somebody's by the time they've gotten there, they've right. They've gone through all the prescription drugs and, and other treatments that the VA can prescribe. Um, yep. It was only 10% of the uh, polling that was opposed or strongly opposed to legalizing it. Everybody else mm -hmm. fell in the, you know, 90% or something, 85% fell in the supporting legalization of cannabis. And we really need to, you know, the federal government needs to get on with this in part because so that the VA can say, uh, we've done the research and these drugs and this uh, cannabis use has interactions, doesn't have interactions, and we can put some strength and dosages issues and uh, around it. I mean, I think that's part of what's missing and part of what you were commenting on. We just need to do more research, don't we? Definitely. And I think, you know, what you're speaking to is sort of the broader like conversation around regulation period. Like there is a, there is positive incentive to even people who aren't cannabis fans to because of where we are right now, both in cultural acceptance and legalization state by state to just get the federal government there. Because once you do, then we know that everybody's going to be using safe cannabis. To your point, they'll be using the right amount of, of dosage because we'll, be, we'll have research behind it and we'll be able to give people that information um, because nobody would wanna, you know, if the purpose is to improve your quality of life and you want the right amount of dosage to be able to do that versus, you know, just shooting from the hip. Right. But lots of people to your point who have already um, tried and not found success with pills and, or, um, you know, there are people who've taken pills and then, you know, maybe got it addicted to them and like, don't want to keep taking them and they would want another therapy because of, you know, what opioids are doing to some people um, these days, then why wouldn't we want to be able to, at this moment in time, uh, regulate an industry and change the laws so people can get access to what is already very readily available, but also in the right quantity and dosage that's fit for whatever condition they have, you know? 
And research will get you there, my friend. <laughs> it, it, it will. And, and uh, I think this problem will solve itself. It's just taking too long. Um, mm-hmm. we're, we're talking to Allison Jaslow, who is the CEO of IAVA, about uh, their 2023 member survey. We still have a few more items there. And then we've got a couple of other areas we want to cover about uh, women, veterans, and recruiting issues. Um, Allison, one of the things that you, uh, I think, busted open in your data here was the, um, it, 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 we were joking about it earlier, we're all people too, so um, yeah. not all veterans of the IAVA era, if you will, uh, vote one way or the other way. They're not all woke and they're not all uh, strict uh, right-wing conservatives. I thought the, the statistics here were there were you know particularly interesting because it it helped demonstrate or prove what I think most of us knew anyway. Uh, it's not a monolithic block. So t- tell us what your uh, results on elections got you. Yeah, I mean, what I like to say is the veteran vote is a jump ball. Um, at least among IAVA members. I mean, we're about a, a third Democrat, a third Republican, and a third, you know, not overly impressed with either party. <laughs> yeah. So um, I think that, that that also flies in the face, I think, of what a lot of people's assumptions would be about the veteran population. Yes, yes. Um, you know, again, our generation is unique. I like to say, I feel like, you know, we're a combination largely of, millennials and gen z of course there are other people who serve or other veterans who've served post 9 11 who don't count themselves as a part of those generations but um you know the medium iva member is actually the same age as i am it's 41 um but i think most people of you know our age and generation are more either small p progressive or libertarian than maybe you'd find in other generations um and so I think they're more than anything else looking for a candidate that can, I don't know, match their values and are probably open to somebody who's outside of the traditional box that we've been fed in the past. Well, um, and, and- But it'll be interesting to, to see specifically, and this is something that's important to me leading our, our organization is like we the candidates need to be speaking to us um, or they will risk losing a very important voting, very important because it's a reliable voting block. You well, know? In that regards, 88% or so said they will vote in the uh, 2024 election without question. There you go. Right? So that's, that's a high percentage of folks that, hey, I'm going to, I've done my job here serving. I'm going to make sure I vote on who's uh, there. But it was, as you say, a jump ball on presidential candidates and Democrats and Republicans sort of split right down, you know, into thirds. And so I'm not, you know, this far out, I'm not sure it tells us a whole lot, but it does tell us they're going to go out and vote. So, yes, I agree the candidates ought to be speaking with uh, uh, IAVA members and veterans in general and not just lip service, which we get all too much of at uh, election times, don't we? Yeah. And I think our, I think our generation specifically is kind of over it. Um, you know, a lot of my contemporaries, their entire adult lives have been shaped by elected leaders failing us. Um, and so I think the hunger right now is for real authentic leadership. Um, I think not just among our generation of veterans, but I think we're hopefully getting to a tipping point where the American 
electorate is going to demand it too. You know, I think people have talked like they've really wanted it, but haven't necessarily voted that way. Um, and then I think that this is an exciting time for our generation of veterans, because I think we're well positioned to step in and be those leaders now, you know, it's taken some time for whether it's in the private sector or the public sector for, um, you know, many of us to, to actually build up a resume to be quote unquote qualified or, you know, worthy of elected office um, at this point. But I think that, I think we're really hitting a moment when it comes to some of the best among us being in positions to lead us forward. And that actually gives me hope these days. No, that's good. That's a good point. Um, we're talking to Allison Jaslow, who's the CEO of IAVA and an army captain, uh, served a couple of times over in Iraq. And, and certainly at a time when women veterans weren't always treated the same or women military members, service members weren't always treated the same as their male counterparts. So being in this position of leadership at IVA, I think helps communicate the value and that there are women veterans out there. But you probably experienced that, uh, Allison, where uh, women weren't in combat units there, technically, although everywhere in Iraq was a combat unit, essentially, and you didn't get the same sort of uh, maybe uh, awards and decorations as male counterparts. And sometimes that can impact uh, competitive promotions or other career opportunities. Um so this is this having the badge of CEO gives you a sort of a leg up to talk to folks about some of these distinctions, doesn't it? It sure does. You know, I think we've come a long way since when I served. Women can now, you know, serve in combat designated roles, which even though I'm here to say, you know, there were bullets flying over the convoys I was riding in. And there were also IEDs hitting the convoys that I was riding in um, when I deployed, but I was a logistics officer um, by school training. And so even though I was, you know, in combat, uh, it was, you know, in a way that wasn't at least foreseen by the people who uh, made policy around women prior to the Afghanistan and Iraq wars. Um, This created, you know, some cascading effects when it comes to, you know, whether women's wartime service was appropriately acknowledged the way that a male peer would. Um, I think there are many women whose service, and especially some women who really served with distinction and valor in combat did get acknowledged, but many women who got overlooked um, and maybe weren't given the awards or recognition that uh, you know, a man who was running the same platoon or the same company would uh, otherwise have gotten. But, you know, hopefully times have changed. And I think it is important that we continue to lean into this conversation, um, in part because it does come down to not just policy change, but leadership as well. And, you know, step one is getting more women into combat uh, designated roles, but also into co- combatant leadership posts as well, which you're seeing a few women, um, you know, today serving in. And that was also key to getting, we just celebrated the first woman who's a, a member of the Joint Chiefs. Um, and having women continue to ascend into those types of leadership roles, I think will help women fully get the recognition that they deserve and will have earned the next time we go to war. Oh, absolutely. And, and, it, and it's, it means a lot, not only to the service member 
but I've certainly seen it over the decades, how much it means to the veteran's family, the veteran's community, uh, their associates. So, so not getting the recognition has this ripple effect that, that can be interpreted as, well, I was something less than, and, and that's certainly not the case. So I'm glad to hear that uh, it's still an issue that people are leaning in on. One more issue, and I promise this is the last one we talked about it when we started, um, that I wanted to get some comments on because of the recruiting misses that every branch of service is suffering at the moment. Uh, as we you talked earlier, one of the unique things about uh, IAVA is its members were all volunteers. We obviously have to have volunteers at full strength for our military. It becomes a national security issue. So give us, I, I know you've been talking and thinking about this issue. Give us some thoughts on how does the military in the country do a better job of uh, recruiting into these spaces? Well, I certainly don't have all of the answers, um, but because this is something that I've personally been spending time on that I feel a sense of responsibility, as you noted, leading the, the largest um, national veterans organization that represents exclusively volunteers that I feel a sense of responsibility to be a part of the solution. And, um, you know, I think first and foremost, I think service needs to be hip. Um, you know, I think culturally, instead of just like, you know, otherizing the troops, you know, I wish we could foster in young people a desire to be one of them. And I think that that can happen two ways. I think it can happen um, just because America is what it is through Hollywood. <laughs> You know, sure, it's cult uh, the cultural. Air, yeah. The Air Force will tell you that they saw a little bit of a bump after Top Gun Maverick came out. Um, but I also think, as veterans, especially because a lot of veterans that I know aren't necessarily like self promoters who will like talk about themselves or their service, I think we need to be, get more comfortable doing it. Um, we are fewer and fewer in numbers. Uh, the American people know less and less of us. And I think. You know, how many people do you know who went into a profession because that's what their parents did or somebody else who they knew? Absolutely. Every you know, doctor, lawyer, baker, candlestick. Baker. Exactly. And so maybe your maybe your parents didn't serve, although, you know, the military today is a good example of like families who are serving. You know, it's sons and daughters, brothers and sisters are, are making up a disproportionate amount of the military, even with this few of people serving these days. Um, but the more people who know us and see us and who can get familiar with what it is to serve, the more we can like get young people in America curious about what that might be for them, whether it's a career or whether it's, you know, just a part of their, you know, adult lived experience. And, and that also gives like the conversation allows people to be more curious and interested and maybe even see themselves in uniform, but it also allows them to understand some of the benefits that can come from service, whether it's the leadership training that I got or the education that I got, you know? And I think that's one of the things we need to all talk more about is that uh, that growth, those things we got, the intangibles we got when we served, 
that uh, kind of carried on through life. Uh, maybe it's uh, showing up on time and realizing you're going to have to work hard and not everything's going to be a, 100% fair. Uh, but those are all life skills, right, that you have to learn to keep moving forward. And you can learn them in the military and you can serve a higher purpose in the military if, you know, it's, it's something that, uh, I, you know, if you love your freedoms, somebody's got to protect those freedoms. And I don't know that we do a great job of ex- expressing those ideas. Um, and I think it'd be a wonderful thing for uh, IAVA to keep promoting uh, out there. And, and that, that is the, the real value of service to people. Even if, even if you get out, and there are many people who are career soldiers, I, you know, I don't know many vets who don't still carry a part of their service experience with them and hold it near and dear to their heart. Even people who, you know, went out guns a-blazing, you know, not looking back, they still have, you know, battle buddies or friends from that time or memories from that time, whether you serve peacetime or in wartime, that profoundly change you for the rest of your life. And I think anybody who wants to serve should consider it. And I think veterans should be encouraging young people to to consider service, but also non-veterans. You know, I hate hearing stories about parents who sometimes think that their kids are too good for serving in uniform. Um, I don't know where that mentality comes from, but you know, parents, even if you come from a very privileged background, if you have a kid who says, you know, I feel like I'm being called to enlist in the Marines, you should support them doing that. It is very uh, inspiring, especially to see children from privileged backgrounds to want to roll up their sleeves and serve something greater than themselves um, and think themselves no better than the other enlisted Marines, you know? Oh, absolutely. And you'll get a, if you do that, if you join up, you're going to meet people from all across the country, all kinds of different uh, approaches uh, and experiences in life. And that will make you a richer person as a result. Uh, Well, and could you, could you imagine what our country would be like today if more people were, were stepping up to serve a common cause and meeting people from different backgrounds? Like, (laughs) I feel like some of the problems we're facing in our country today could be ameliorated if more people served together, whether it's in military service or in other ways, towards a common mission and a common goal that that worked to make this country a better place than it was yesterday. Absolutely. You know? It would create a commonality, not build uh, barriers in between folks. Well, we, we certainly appreciate the extra time that uh, Allison Jaslow, CEO of IAVA, gave us. Your mission uh, that you're supporting is uh, really important, and we are uh, glad to be able to you know, broadcast it out a little further and, and help bring folks to you. Uh, you got a, you got an easy website to, 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 uh, for folks to find you. Why don't you give them that if they want to know more about IAVA? Sure, you can visit us at IEVA.org. Uh, we are a nonprofit uh, that grinds away advocating on our, our generation of veterans. Um, please visit IEVA.org and learn more about us. And if you so choose, donate in support of our work. Allison, thank you for your time today. Thank you for having me, Jim. 
And I want to thank everybody for listening to Veterans Radio today. I am Jim Fossone. It's been a pleasure to be your host. I'm a veterans disability lawyer at Legal Help for Veterans, and you can reach us at 800-693-4800 or legalhelpforveterans.com on the web. You can follow Veterans Radio on Facebook and listen to its podcasts and Internet radio shows by visiting us at veteransradio.org. That's veteransradio.org. And until next time, you are dismissed. If you have a VA claim denied by the Board of Veterans' Appeals, contact Legal Help for Veterans at 1-800-693-4800. They're experts in handling cases before the U.S. Court of Appeals for Veterans' Claims. Their number again, 1-800-693-4800. We again want to thank our national sponsors, the National Veterans Business Development Council, nvbdc.org, VA Ann Arbor Health Care System, the Vietnam Veterans of America, Charles S. Kettles Chapter, Ann Arbor, Michigan. VFW Graf O'Hara Post 423 in Ann Arbor. And the American Legion Press Corn Post 46, also in Ann Arbor. We appreciate all your support. You can go to veteransradio.net, click on the sponsor level, and continue to support keeping Veterans Radio on the air. And until next time... You are dismissed.